You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Tony Nettleman, who's my guest today. Tony, thanks for being on the show. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. We were just talking with David at the radio station about uh, confusing things and how often people get things right or wrong. <laughs> so when I called in, as you know, I was a little surprised that I had both you and my guest for next week on the show. But, yeah, that's okay. Uh, the more the merrier. More the, yeah, that's right. But but those are great folks. I, people look forward to hearing them next week, so that'll, that'll be good. But uh, for the audience's sake, I think probably most of our listeners know who, who Tony is. Uh, Tony's a young surveyor and... Uh, I get you still fall into that young surveyor category of being under 35 years old, right, Tony? I hope so. Someone told me I looked <laughs> like I was 30. I was really insulted. <laughs> yeah, um, but it, the whole young surveyor thing and uh, and the workforce development thing that's been going on, and uh, the fact that you've gone through all the processes you've gone through to to get where you are, and I, I guess I should remind, even though I put this in the newsletter, Tony, I don't know if you saw that or not. I I uh, prefaced my remarks in there by letting people know who your who your granddad is and i haven't talked to him for a while how's he doing by the way he's doing great he's doing a lot of gardening and watching uh perry mason but he's enjoying himself <laughs> yeah it's amazing uh how far back in history you can go on on tv shows these days it's just my son and his family still watch uh andy griffith's show all the time and i i think they probably have every episode recorded somewhere on the way that's scary but uh, but well they have a good reason to do it because where Andy Griffith grew up is only 12 miles away from my hometown and, and the town I was born in so uh, they have a close connection to the whole thing but uh, that's very cool yeah yeah it is and glad to glad to hear that Walt's doing well uh, for those who, who don't know uh, Tony's grandfather's Walt Roblar and, and by the way, we're through our foundation, Tony. We're issuing the first of the scholarships in his name. That that you know, that scholarship was started um, earlier this year, I guess, in the spring at the New Jersey Surveyors Conference. I saw that. I saw the pictures. He was he was very excited. That was probably uh, one of his uh, top days this year. So he had a, he had a lot of fun getting to see some old friends and getting the award. It was a it was a big deal. Yeah, and uh, and they they ask us through our foundation to uh, to administer the scholarship, and so it was included among those for which students could uh, could uh, make application this year. And I, those, I think we have all the applications in now, and I'm not sure if the committee has them in hand yet, but they'll be reviewing them here soon. And actually, that's the first time I'd met your mom. It's funny. I think my mother and my aunt both went uh, to the New Jersey um, get-together. Yeah. So well, they, they had a lot of fun. They had a little mini-vacation and, and uh, took care of my grandfather at the same time. Yeah, I, I had met your aunt several times, but I think the first time I ever met her was I was going to Fairbanks, Alaska to speak at a conference, and Walt was going as well, and your aunt was with him. So that was that's first, and that's been, gosh, I can't tell you how many years ago that's been, but it's been a while. Yes, yeah, uh, Nora right. is the official uh, suitcase carrier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. And, and our audience may be thinking at this point, uh, what's the purpose of this conversation? But it's all related, really, to our topic today, uh, which involves education uh, and workforce development. And, of course, scholarships is a big 
part of that, and, and we're going to be talking about a few other things with Tony today as well. But with with everything that's been happening in the last six months or so um, since at the last board meeting last fall of, of NSPS, uh, an initiative for uh, the future of surveying workforce development was um, passed, and a lot of activity has been going on related to that. And, and I think you're aware of the the Future of Surveying Task Force that was initiated through NCWS a year or so ago at a meeting in San Diego back in January, and another one coming up at the end of this week on the same topic of, of workforce development. And so with you having gone through all the elements of going from the educational system and now uh, doing some teaching down at Corpus Christi, and of course, going through your law degree as well, thought it might be good to get your perspectives as as a young surveyor, having gone through that process uh, on that whole future of the workforce development, and then talk about some of your experiences in getting there. I know one of the things you and I talked about in our preliminary was the, your preparation for the for the Florida exam when you took it. And so we'll want to hear about that too. But in this first segment, and maybe even beyond, I'm really interested in your thoughts on this this whole development thing and and how that how you perceive it from your exposure into the educational system uh, even beyond corpus if you have contacts with other people I assume you do um, on yeah, that's a great how, question. That, how that stands you know it's it's always tough to answer a question like that because I've gone through several tracks at the same time it seems like you know I went through the academic track to get a bachelor's and a master's and a PhD so I can teach I also went through the professional track, I guess you could call it, where I got a lot of experience during middle school and high school, worked throughout college, got my SIT and my PS and all that stuff. And finally, a third, I went through and got a law degree, which is kind of the law, the lawyer track, too. And I'm a licensed attorney also. So it's kind of interesting to see how different, um, you know, different tracks find and recruit students. And it's it's never easy to give people an answer because finding the new surveyors is not, you know, a one-size-fits-all thing. You have to ask yourself, you know, well, who are you recruiting? Are you going to get technicians looking for licensed professionals? Are you searching for the for the next professors? Because most of the professors have at least uh, 75% gray in their hair right now, and I think uh, it's getting uh, it's getting more gray. So it's it's really tough to figure out how we're going to recruit our next generation. So, do you at at the school um, are there particular things that that you guys are doing down there, um, or and, and I don't know how much there is um, collaboration. Maybe maybe collaboration probably isn't an appropriate term, considering that the pool of students is more of a competition. Maybe it's uh, but but I'm just curious about. Um, that whole dynamic. I know we, as professional surveyors, have our own thoughts about it, and sometimes people think our thoughts are probably too old-fashioned because of that age. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but I'm just you know, it, what, what are the schools doing? I actually did a survey about four years ago. I went to FIG, the, the uh, International Surveyors Group in Rome, and I got a contact list from another professor. It was the FIG professors, the higher education people. And I sent them like a 10-question survey, and I basically had a bunch of questions about, well, how do you find your students? 
And I don't think I found one program out of 20 that said that they had a working solution, which was kind of frustrating because I was hoping to steal someone else's idea and use it when I was at Florida. So I, I, we talked about, you know, well, you can get students from high school. You can get Boy Scouts doing the merit badges. You can transfer students in from community colleges. You can send professional surveyors to different groups to talk and recruit. You can even hire a publicist. We had a, one or two societies who hired a full-time publicist marketer, and even they didn't have very good results. So at Corpus Christi, uh, I'm the head of recruiting, and I've kind of focused on community colleges because they're in surveying or GIS. They know they like it. They know they want to do it. And I just make it easy for them to transfer in from a two-year to a four-year because if you want to be an RPLS in Texas, you have to have a four-year degree. So I say we have transfer agreements. We've got these little uh, sheets. You can compare your classes. Just show up, fill up a form. I'll transfer it for you, and it's really simple. So I, I guess I focus more on the uh, upper end of the pipeline that seems to be the easier pickings, if we could say, other than the high schools or other people. Yeah, and that's an interesting perspective um, because oftentimes, and, and I, we, we hear this a lot, um, on the recruiting side is that we need to start reaching out to younger and younger and younger and younger people to get them even considering surveying as a career uh, because it seems as though those kind of thoughts, not necessarily final decisions, but those seeds get planted in terms of what someone may want to do and all the challenges associated with making the serving profession uh, something that younger younger students, even middle schools or earlier, might begin to think about. Um, and so there's a fair amount of focus being placed on that. As a matter of fact, uh, I think I might have told you we've got some folks going to a school counselors association conference in, uh, in New Orleans in a few weeks to, to talk to guidance counselors about that. And so it sounds like what I'm hearing you say is that in, in the situation you're in at least, uh, you're finding some successes at the community college level for people who perhaps didn't think about surveying until they, until someone came in. And, and I guess I'm interested in your your uh, tactics for doing that because I hear other – I'm on the uh, advisory team for Troy and, and East Tennessee State, and, and I hear them talk about the whole community college thing and how hard it is to get in there sometimes. So, <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, I, I wish I had more – uh, resources to go after the younger students to get them interested. But, you know, I figured when I came to A&M Corpus Christi, well, let's find the, the easiest ones to recruit. What's the easiest demographic to, to find that wants to come into the program? And uh, it's funny enough, I had a meeting with an administrator, not a surveyor, but someone who runs the college, and they told me they want to double the program in five years. They want to double the enrollment. I said, okay, great, uh, you know, all you need to do is find full-time staff and give us, you know, marketing money, and I can pretty much tell you we'll double the program. Well, that's the last thing I heard. So that wasn't part. That wasn't part of the plan. <laughs> right. Exactly. Everyone wants things free, cheap, and easy. And unfortunately, recruiting geomatic students is is none of those things. It's it's a lot of work. Even uh, recruiting people who already are surveyors. So if they're already like technicians, they want to four-year degree, 
if they're already in the two-year program, they want a four-year degree, that still, you know, takes a lot of work. So I've learned just to show up. So I'll call the uh, program head or the professor, and I'll say, I'll see you in two weeks, and one of your cl- give me two of your classes. So I'll do a presentation. I'll have some handouts, like how do I transfer into A&M, uh, what's the job prospects like, kind of like a, a, a batch of materials. And I'll just do my half an hour stump speech, and that's been pretty successful. Uh, I wish I could say I did more in the towards the younger people, but right now we're kind of focusing on the easier targets just to get our enrollment as, as good as we can. And I, I have to wonder, and we're half a minute away from break, so we may want to carry this over to the next segment, but one of the things that we talk about a lot, and, and you're aware of this, the whole idea of the young surveyors group, which are under 35s, um, and getting them more involved in recruitment rather than most of us uh, gray hair guys. And, and so with that, I'll, I'll leave our audience hanging till we come back from the break, and we'll go ahead and take that break now. Sounds great. Thanks, Kurt. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. Buzz off with Lawyer Liz. Join me each week, Wednesdays at 2 o'clock, as we talk drones, Internet of Things, and technology. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Tony, when we went to break, we were were chatting about recruitment and methodologies for doing that. And uh, you you mentioned uh, a really good way to do it, of course, is to have a full-time staff of people who do it. Um, And, and, you know, thinking about that, one of the avenues for trying to figure out how to do this is uh, looking at STEM and seeing if there's any way we can leverage some some STEM funds to help us do those kind of things um, in, in surveying. And, of 
uh, Science, Technology, Engineering, and Math is what STEM stands for. I think most of our listeners know that. And there's a big push on, on STEM education these days uh, at all levels. So we're hoping that we may be able to leverage some of that. And, and of course, if we do, it'll be helpful. But one of the things we're, we were chatting about was this whole idea of, you know, who's, who's the messenger and what is it kids at whatever level, whether they're going to be high school or junior college or whatever they may be, um, who would they be more likely to uh, be influenced by? And, and, I, and that's part of the reason I think the whole Young Surveyors thing got started internationally and, and nationally. And so I'm, I'm, I guess I'm getting around to the question or, or maybe just some thoughts that you may have regarding that in terms of when you go in as a, as a, a younger, enthusiastic person uh, rather than, say, me going who's a, an older, enthusiastic person. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it's it's interesting. There's a sweet spot. You, you've got to find people that are young enough that, that the younger high school students, uh, potential college students, they can relate to. So, you know, if I'm, you know, 29 and I'm going to talk to 18-year-olds, well, 10 years is a long time, but it's really not that long. But they also want to see, well, what's it going to be like for me? So if 10 years later in my life, will I be like him or like her? And that's kind of the interesting dynamic is you want to find someone who's young enough they can relate to you know try relating a you know a 60 or 70 year old to a 17 year old it'll be like a different universe but they also want to see you know where did you end up how did you do this and they want to make sure like you know if i choose this i'm going to have a good life like he is or she is so it's it's interesting to see you know if you have younger professors those are very popular we have uh, Islander Days, and Islander Days are like recruiting days. High school students, potential college students, they come in, and they listen to like half an hour lectures on, well, what's Professor X doing in this program? So you show them all your cool stuff, you know, the drones and the computer mapping and all that, and they say, well, yeah, that sounds really interesting. Seems like a nice person. You know, I'm hooked. And we've gotten a lot of students that way where they just kind of show up uh, out of the blue, they're perusing programs, looking for their next career, and they just kind of land in surveying. And I think having younger people, younger professors, or even students, you know, talk to them makes a huge difference. And sometimes I wonder, uh, this is going to sound sacrilegious, but uh, from a surveying perspective, but sometimes I wonder how much um, of the focus that we, I'm speaking of we as a older group, um, you know, we place a lot of emphasis on the, the professionalism of what we do, the protection of the public, the, all of those kind of things, public welfare and, you know, oldest profession, looking at, looking for to help people solve their second problems. Second oldest profession. Yeah, second oldest, so they say. And um, that, you know, those are things we like to talk about, and, and they're all relevant. I mean, they, they're really part of what we do. But I'm not really sure how effective they are in recruiting as compared to drones and, and computer programs and, you know, all the things that, that young people are interested in now. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I'm the same way. I prefer the legal aspects a lot more than the technology. I have, I have a Phantom 3. It's a lot of fun. I really enjoy it. And I'm, I enjoy the technology, too. But I also, you know, my focus legal aspects, the ethics, professional responsibility, and you can put a lot of that in there. You know, that people want to hear they're going to work in a noble profession. 
they're going to be well respected. Uh, they want to hear that being a surveyor is essential to, you know, the orderly function of society. And that's great stuff to tell them. But it's not quite as fun or as interesting. And if you want to recruit students, you've got to make it fun, interesting, engaging. Maybe they learn the professional responsibility um, aspects a little farther along once they're hooked. That may be a sweetener, but it's probably not a driver of, you know, uh, new students. And, and all that makes perfect sense. Um, you know, as a, as a, a grandfather with, with two grandchildren in college, uh, I, can, I can relate to that whole dynamic in terms of motivations and, and interest. And um, I, another example, I think, I don't know if I mentioned this to somebody else on the radio show the other day, but it, in, a, in a way, to me, it's the same kind of mentality uh, in, uh, for music. Like a couple of centuries ago when I was learning to play guitar, uh, you learn chord structures and, and, you, and you learn all the elements that go into making sound. And for my grandson doing it was watching somebody do it on YouTube and replicating what they did. Absolutely. And so it's it, it's just, it, just interesting. And by the way, he's 90 times better at doing it than I am. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think it's a similar kind of thing where they're looking at how their the world they know relates to this not necessarily the world that they're going to necessarily or the way I might perceive it but how that world can can affect and as you say be a rewarding career for them an honorable career a, a noble career definitely you know, they want to be able to connect what they know already with what they want to do for the rest of their life so if they're already into technology they're already into computer programming or doing stuff with their, you know, they want to enjoy their smartphones or something else. Well, you have to kind of meet them at where they're comfortable with and then relate what they know to what they could do for a living. And if they feel comfortable, they say, I really enjoy technology. I like being outside. I enjoy um, complex projects like piecing together things, puzzles. Then you can take their interest and you can show them how they can do this for a living as opposed to just doing a hobby or something else. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's all really good, really good information, I think, for our audience to know and, and helpful for what we're trying to do with the workforce development program and uh, particularly coming from someone in your position. I mean, all of us can have our ideas about it, but you actually live and breathe the stuff for to, to uh, keep your program going. And speaking of the program, how many, how many instructors do you all have in the program right now? I think we have six or seven professors right now. So we, we primarily employ full-time assistant and associate professors, which is really nice because a lot of programs may use adjuncts or part-time people. We have a, one or two of those who teach some of the more um, esoteric classes like hydrology. But really, we got a really good group of full-time professors who teach not just surveying. We teach surveying, GIS, UAS, kind of the whole geospatial package in one program. And again, I think that's a, a, a smart thing to do because it exposes all the elements related to the profession. Uh, Absolutely. surveyors are involved in all of those things, sometimes we tend to think, well, that's not us, but it really is. 
It has to be because I was looking at the BILS statistics, the Bureau of Labor uh, published by the federal government about job prospects. And the job prospects for traditional land surveyors is in the negative, I think. And the job prospects for geospatial is in double-digit growth. So you look at where things are going. Well, people may not like merging geospatial within surveying, but that's the future. Well, and I mean, you think about it from an opportunity perspective. Um, if and when they're and I've read those same statistics, and you're correct. I think it's about a two percent drop over the next ten years, or something like that. If you're looking at what they, you know, their definition of what a professional surveyor is. Um, but when you combine that with the geospatial side, which I, it's, it's kind of hard for me to think moving forward that one can be successful as a professional surveyor without adding those other elements in. Um, so in, in reality, you combine those two things, I think the job prospects are really good. Absolutely. Uh, it's amazing if you have our students have very different perspectives on you know, common things like boundary surveys or topo. If you gave a topo survey of 50 acres to a professional surveyor, he'd probably send a few crews out, you know, something like that, traditional equipment. Well, one of our students would probably fly his EB with about two hours worth of time, have it done in you know, 5% of the time as a traditional uh, topo survey. So they, they really have a, a good opportunity to innovate and to make a job for themselves by using this um, this knowledge they've gained to think about things differently. Very true, and and uh, and I think we, the ones of us who are in the profession now, need to embrace that idea more uh, rather than say, "Well, don't take that. That's not surveying." Well, it can be, right? And and I think that's the key. Is yeah, there are other applications. For those types of activities, but that doesn't doesn't eliminate surveying as one of those activities. Uh, Absolutely, you take the activity and use the accuracy and precision required by a land surveyor, and that's a survey. Right, exactly, and and I think that's part of the difficulty sometimes is that uh, that perception that, and perhaps the reality to some degree, that when when a a product is provided through those newer systems, the the diligence of the surveyor isn't part of it and to make it a survey. But yet, it oftentimes gets substituted for a survey. And I think that's part of where the problem comes in for the, for the current uh, group of surveyors that are out there is that whole idea that somebody else is doing this work and presenting it to other people for their use, but yet it doesn't have the, quote, professional element to it that or the, or the due diligence, perhaps, that a surveyor would add. So I guess the answer to that is just more surveyors need to do it, and then they offer uh, even a higher, value, more, more valuable product. Absolutely. Either more surveyors do it or the land surveying boards in different states kind of adapt their laws to not focus on the product or not focus on the, the method of collection but more focus on the product. So maybe they can expand the board, which they would love to do, by encompassing more geospatial things. Right. And and setting up mechanisms through which students who go into the, the geospatial sciences, so to speak, do have a path to get to to licensure 
with with going through whatever processes are, are necessary, whether it's internships or, or whatever they may be, because those are required anyway um, when when going through the schools to get to the license. So maybe that's another thing that we need to be thinking more more strongly about is making sure that we incorporate all of those types of things into our message as we as we carry it out. So I see we're right Absolutely. here at the break second break already so let's go do that and we'll come back in a couple of minutes attention surveyors seanstead announces the maggie the next generation magnetic locator the maggie combines the best features of two flagship seanstead products the sensitivity and precision of the ga52 cx and the visual display and single-handed operation of the ga92 xt contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com seanstead the best just got better don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power america on butterflies rainbows and pixie dust i'm marita noon get the truth about energy on my show america's voice for energy only on america's web radio this is daryl pullis inviting you to listen to america's homegrown veggie show right here every saturday morning at 10 eastern time great guests great tips and valuable information about growing your own vegetables fruits and herbs quick steaks is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Want to know if your Seanstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Seanstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Going into our next segment, Tony, I want to—I do want to talk about the whole licensing structure and exams and steps to get into licensure. But one one other quick question on the topic we were on: uh, there, a lot of conversation goes around about the number of programs that are out there, and are there enough? Uh, I know we're doing some research right now to f- try to find out. And what we're finding is that whether two year or four year, there are a lot of programs out there. Some people think maybe we're oversaturated, uh, particularly on the four year schools. But I-, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that for a second or two. It's interesting because, uh, you know, back in the day, we would think of we're going to have one really good four year school for each region. You know, Texas, big area, one four year program. Uh, Florida, University of Florida. That covers the southeast. Fresno is in California, Penn State. So we have, you know, maybe a handful of really good programs. And what's strange is a lot of other four-year programs, which may not be accredited, may not be well-funded, they kind of pop up and may siphon off these otherwise, uh, you know, students going to the major four-year programs. 
So I, I wouldn't say they're oversaturated, but it seems like sometimes the less well-known programs may be diverting students from those bigger programs and kind of uh, frustrating the frustrating the the um, the ability of us to recruit and to run these solid programs. So it can be kind of frustrating. Yeah, and and again, as you mentioned early on, numbers is a big deal. You know, how many how many students are in your program? That's a that's a big deal. So I just think it's something we need to look at it uh, moving forward to make sure we have adequate amount, but don't don't like you say siphon off too much from from the schools that uh, are offering that strong for your program, which if if not now is going to be at some point. I think the the standard for which license uh, is based. And speaking of that. Um, Let's talk a little bit about those steps toward licensure. It's very interesting. Everyone talks about how do we find the next generation of surveyors, but very few people talk about, well, once we find these people, what do we do with them? And we kind of take it as um, as as a default that these people will start off as a freshman, they'll go up to be a senior, they'll take their SIT, their surveyor and training, get their license, then they'll get their experience, and then they'll get their RPLS or their PSM, whatever you like to call the, the final registration, and then they'll be, you know, lifelong practitioners. That's assumed, and it's very strange because I see students drop out at freshmen because they don't. They it's too tough of a program. I see them drop out mid mid year because they can't afford to keep going. Uh, seen a lot of people who get within one or two classes and they quit because of some reason. And even if they do make it to graduation and, and get their SIT, then they have to acquire the experience and get their RPLS, and that's not a given either. So maybe we should focus more on if we have the students, let's keep them. And in terms, you're talk, when you say let's keep them, you're talking about um, creating environments in which you can keep them, or because you were talking about some of them think it's too hard and and those kind of things. So how do you how do you overcome that side of it? That's tough. Uh, you know, it may be recruiting the right students, not just all that are interested. So some students just cannot make the calculus and the physics. It's, it's not easy. Uh, I knew a math teacher who took calculus two five times before she passed. It was really kind of crazy, but. Also, a lot of students really don't know what it takes to become a professional surveyor. Even the ones who are uh, seniors in a four-year program, they kind of know their licenses, and they've heard different terms like SIT, PS, FS, but they're not really sure how all that fits together. You know, what's the quickest path to go from student to professional? And, you know, I tell people our job is to recruit the students graduate them as efficiently as possible, and get them licensed. If we can do that, we're in good shape. And um, I spend a lot of time advising and mentoring these students on how to do that, and I've realized just how much misinformation there is about the process. So how does – I know a lot of schools will do – Kids going that are that are coming into their senior year, or maybe somewhere in their senior year, they're allowed to go ahead and take the, the fundamentals exam. 
I don't know if you guys do that through your school or not, but I know some do. Um, and but also find in talking with with some of the advisory teams that they're sometimes finding finding it difficult to get students to go ahead and take the fundamentals, which is kind of the whole idea for being there, which surprised me a little bit. It is confusing. Uh, a lot of students are going through their tough classes in the senior year, but they put them off for a while, or they're, they know they want to become a professional. They're just not sure when, may not be totally motivated. So we at a- Texas A&M uh, started doing these uh, prep courses. So I started building a lot of material years ago to help students at my different universities pass the uh, fundamentals of surveying exam. And uh, we've kind of taken that and made it more of a, a formal process. So the student chapter will host a live prep course and get volunteer professors to speak. Uh, I've actually developed a lot of courses myself, which I sell online to build these uh, FS and PS prep courses. But I, what I've realized is if the more information they have, the more motivated they are to do it. So why should you take the FS in your senior year? Well, because in many states, you have to pass the FS before your experience starts accruing to get your RPLS or your professional registration. So if you explain the benefits of why you should do this early, most students will do it. But if they're not sure how it benefits them, they'll probably put it off until a later time. So they don't necessarily begin that, as you said, you said, I think, as far as I know, all states require fundamentals before and then some level of, of internship before you get the licensure, which is typically about four years, I think, in, mo- in most of the states I know anything about, once you get through fundamentals. And yeah, it's very strange. Uh, I'm doing a, a paper for Salus on the uh, differences in state licensing. So how does Idaho compare to Oklahoma? And... The, uh, the amount of experience and in, in the uh, types of degrees accepted very, very um, much. Some states require high school diploma for an SIT. Some states require a four-year degree. Some states require only a four-year bachelor's of science, but they will not accept bachelor's of arts, which is kind of interesting. And then they want to add on different uh, semesters of hours, and I've, I've seen experience after the SIT vary from two years, at the minimum, to nine years at the maximum. So the well, amount I, of experience I've never heard required, of that one. <laughs> Yeah, That's it's very long. strange. And I'm sorry, the nine years is the SIT requirement. So if you want to get an SIT without a bachelor's, you've got to have nine years of uh, experience to get that. So right. I couldn't imagine waiting nine years. I think I'd go crazy in the meantime. But it's very interesting to see how, you know, how very different every state is. Yeah, that's very true. And, and I think one of the things that, that brought a lot of the folks in, in the serving profession around to the whole concept of the importance of, of that fundamental education being pretty much the same, uh, at least in concept, was the fact that not all experience is equal. So the fact that someone has whatever number of years of experience going into the fundamentals exam doesn't necessarily mean that 
everybody going into the fundamentals exam has the same types of experiences or the same exactly. level. Exactly. I totally so, agree with you. And I think that over time, over the years, sort of played itself out. Um, not played itself out to a, to a final point, but it was demonstrated uh, because of oftentimes the number of repetitions in taking the exam before actually being successful. And I, I'm not sure what those rates are these days. I, you may have, in your research, may have seen that to see what the, the pass rate is for fundamentals at first attempt. I was shocked. Uh, I, I did the bar exam a couple of years ago, and the bar exam uh, for attorneys in Florida was pretty low passage rate, 60%, 70% some of the time. So I thought that was pretty low. But the but the passage rate for the fundamentals for the first-time takers is 50%. So you flip a coin and 50-50 whether people pass or fail. I was very surprised. Yeah, and, and again, I think that has to do with, with prerequisites going in. Um, and I don't know, on, on the FS, are those rates similar, or is that just FS in general, regardless of how you got to to your basic require or meeting the basic requirements? Are they higher for the FS exam for those who've gone through the schools? I would imagine they probably are, but I don't know. I would too. I would. I would almost bet on it. But unfortunately, a lot of the statistics that NCES publishes are very summary. You know, mm-hmm. if you go on the website, you can. It'll tell you well. Uh, 280 people took the FS last year, and of those 280 first-time takers, 54% passed. Okay, and then you say, well, what about repeat takers? Oh, well, 150 repeat takers took it last year, and only 25% passed. So I think a lot of those people who have uh, not gone through the formal education are probably taking this multiple times trying to pass it, and that really drives the rate really in half. So one quarter of repeat takers pass this exam. Do you think that that situation is um, perhaps affected by the fact that of all the changes that have occurred in the level of education one needs to even get into the surveying profession these days in terms of uh, uh, how the exams are structured I mean, years ago, exams were basically structured on what's one likely to learn in in an apprenticeship situation, so to speak. Absolutely. Now, I think they're focused more on the educational side, so it would would be reasonable that more people who've gone through that track would, would, would pass at a higher rate. So think about what's tested on the FS. Uh, it, just in the math section, calculus, statistics, matrix algebra, spherical trigonometry. I mean, do you come across any of that in a professional practice apprenticeship scenario? Absolutely not. I mean, right. you use matrix algebra, but the computer does it for you. So if you're not you know, formally educated, then the FS is really going to be tough. I, I tell people the NCES builds the FS exam for a senior in a surveying or engineering program. It's, it's, time for our, it's time for our last break. Let's pick up on, on that fact when we come back. That's an interesting concept. 
Want to know if your Shonstead locator is still under warranty? Go to Shonstead.com and click on Warranty Finder in the lower left-hand corner. Enter your six-digit serial number, and it will tell you everything you need to know. Out of warranty? Click on Repair Department. But here's a tip. Before sending it in, pick up a $25 discount by going to Specials and Sales under the Buy Now tab at www.schonstedt.com. Quick Stakes is your answer to staking. Lightweight, easy to ride on, easy to use, easy to find, and won't break your back carrying them like the old-fashioned wooden stakes. Have you tried a sample? If not, get a pen and paper and write down this number, 800-438-0387, or go to quickstake.com, that's Q-U-I-K-S-T-A-K-E.com, and order your samples. Ask your surveying supply dealer for quickstakes today. Whether cruising the Strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. Attention surveyors, Seanstead announces the Maggie, the next-generation magnetic locator. The Maggie combines the best features of two flagship Seanstead products, the sensitivity and precision of the GA52CX and the visual display and single-handed operation of the GA92XT. Contact your dealer for details or go to www.seanstead.com. Seanstead, the best just got better. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Tony, as we were going to break, you, we were talking about that whole scenario of exam taking and preparation for the exam and um, differences that we're seeing and, and of course, changes in state laws. And um, I'm not sure. There's always a question out there. As a matter of fact, I get this question all the time, and maybe through the research you've been doing for your article, you may have more insight into this, but there's always an interest in knowing uh, through the surveyor population and, and recruitment. What are the actual requirements, and you know, how many states have a hard and fast got to have a four-year degree? Because so many of the ones, like in my home state and other states, the very th- first thing on the list is four-year degree, and then you read down about two or three other items, and it could be know 20 years of experience or whatever the case is um do you know any statistics at all about any certainties on how many states say and i think texas is one of these where you now have to have the four-year degree is that true that is true and it's interesting i'm actually only to idaho on my excel spreadsheet for licensing (laughs) requirements so i can only tell you about 10 states right now but a lot of these i see uh do have well if you have a four-year degree then you'll have only this much experience to get your RPLS. But almost all of them I've seen so far um, really do not require a four-year degree. Uh, Something like Arizona will take an associate's degree. Uh, Other states like uh, Georgia, Hawaii, um, even like Arizona, they'll take really anything. You just basically, you have so many units, say eight units, you can get four years of college, four years of work, or zero years of college, eight years of work. 
So as long as you make the magic number, you can get it however you want to. And by the way, I'm going to throw an off-the-wall question at you here before sure, we yeah. get into our, our last topic, but it's it's something that comes up all the time, and it's related to – I talk I on the show more than I should – but it's related to what we call the, the pin farms or the pin cushion effect and all that. You know, we're <laughs> several irons <laughs> in, a, yes. in a small circle. I'm curious. Uh, we were talking about understanding the math earlier and, and gaining that knowledge through the educational programs. Do you think that has an impact, that perhaps the misunderstanding or lack of understanding of how, how our equipment actually works and and having the, the background to, to actually grasp it. I wonder if if that plays a part in the whole pen farm thing. Or it doesn't matter how high how what how high your level of education is, everybody just trusts the instruments. Well it's interesting whenever I do these seminars I hear another gentleman in his uh, in the in the conference room preaching about pincushion corners, so I'm very uh, well-versed in pincushion corners by now. Uh, I think it really comes down to not a misapplication of, of technology, but it's really a, a misunderstanding of the state laws. So if you find a pincushion or you find a corner that's one one-hundredth of a foot different from your measurement, do you take the corner or do you take the uh, distance in bearing? Well, if you understand the priority of calls, the corner is called for, you're done. But even if you don't find the corner called for, well, it's a hundredth of a foot off. Does my board require me in their accuracy and precision statement to, to fix that, as we say, or can I simply use the existing corner? And if you don't understand the uh, positional tolerance requirements of the state you're practicing in, you may be setting way more corners than you actually have to. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, that, that discussion gets all the way back to original corners and whether they're two-hundredths of a foot away or they're five feet away it, it is the original corner the original corner. <laughs> so you know, Absolutely. The, all, of those, all of those play into it as well. And uh, but and thanks for for delving into that a little bit because it's something that comes up all the time and and you hear the arguments one way or the other that well if we were better educated uh, but but I, I I think your answer is a, a good one if you really understand the principles on which it's based and and what the what your state requires and to, what the tolerances are that does make a difference of course I've never um, met a GPS that can find a true corner exactly there's no there's no subroutine for that unfortunately but it's coming yeah well it may be. At least it'll be precisely measured. It may not be in the right place. But be um, Only for a thousand dollar upgrade fee. <laughs> yeah. Well, in the last part of our discussion, um, I was interested in talking to you about a lot of, or, or something I'm hearing a lot about, um, for a variety of reasons, and that is more specialization and less uh, general concepts of licensure. Um, and, and, and I'll give you a couple of examples, uh, either geodesy or, or hydrography or whatever the, the case may be, all of which in most states fall within the licensure structure. But many people are not educated or have experience in actually doing that work, yet they're licensed to do it if they choose to do it. And, of course, we're not supposed to go beyond our level of competence. I understand that and hope everybody does adhere to that. But 
with all the new technologies that are coming out and the fields that are opening up, we talked in the beginning of our conversation about all the various things surveyors can do these days. Do you are you are you seeing any any trends in conversation, what have you, where people are saying, well, maybe we should have separate licensing units to prove our competence in the various segments of the profession? Yes, that's a good question. I've seen a lot of states that are so narrow in their, what is surveying? Well, it's boundary location. Okay, great. We're not going to find any kind of separate tracks if you're just regulating boundary location. But other states will encompass like photogrammetry. Uh, I think of like uh, New Mexico uh, may encompass other kinds of maps. And that is a, an interesting topic. But I think that a lot of times we don't realize Surveyors in some states have been licensed to do drainage um, and hydrography, other things like that, for a long time, for decades. And we've got to we've got to understand that you have one license, but you're required to do two things: to be competent and to be diligent. And to be competent means you've got to have the experience, education, understanding to take that job. You know, just because your license gives it to you doesn't mean you should do it. You're still liable. That Yeah, I, I whole, wholeheartedly agree with that. And I'm just, my, my thought process on it is trying to determine whether or not there's any, any value or need to have any specialization with regard to having been passed an exam that would prove probably prove your competence is not the right word, but to have met the, the minimum requirements to do any variety of things uh, where, generally speaking, and, and I haven't taken an exam in a really long time, so I don't know if the, <laughs> current, I don't know if the current exams branch out a lot further to, to capture all the different elements of surveying that, you know, back in the days when I took the exam, hardly anybody in the southwestern mountains of Virginia were worried about doing uh, uh Hydrographic surveys, um, or those kind of things. So absolutely, I'm just, the, I'm just the computers took up entire the computers took up entire rooms, right? No, yeah. you're not that old. Yeah, I am. That, my well, first calculator was a, a CURTA. Do you know what a CURTA is? Uh, I don't think so. Is, is that a little is cylindrical? That little no, it's made out of metal, but it's a little cylindrical thing. It has a crank on the top. Oh, I thought it was and, one of those guys where you have. Little beads Not the abacus. Yeah, okay. It wasn't an abacus. Okay. That may be my grandfather's first calculator. <laughs> yeah, perhaps. Well, it's a, that's a great question, again, because it, attorneys have what's called board certification, where you're a licensed attorney, but you can be board certified in real estate, board certified in bankruptcy, board certified in divorce. And that may be an interesting thing for us to do, but I think if we're going to do that, we'll have to have a lot more surveyors. It does cost and does take a lot of time to administer. But also the boards have to expand to be more geospatial as opposed to just surveying. So maybe we'll have a UAS board uh, certification or a, or a land information certification. So that would be great. It's just going to take, you know, a lot more people in the profession and also you know, an expanding of the board statutes to encompass those things. Yeah, and and I hear from from my fellow surveyors oftentimes that um, 
when disputes come up in geospatial information, whether it's through some advice through somebody in the courthouse or maybe a realtor giving somebody advice using a GPS handheld or whatever the case may be, uh, I hear people say, well, if they were going to be held accountable for that, they, they probably wouldn't be doing it, or they think twice before they they do that. Um, and so I, I, do, I, know, I do know there's a certain level of frustration when um, the public is, is sometimes misinformed about information by folks who are, are somewhere in the geospatial world, but the information they give out from the server's perspective should should be information provided by a surveyor. Absolutely, you know, surveyors provide accurate and precise, you know, locations or attributes of objects. But if the public doesn't know the difference between a GIS technician and a professional land surveyor, well, they're going to have no idea. What, you know, why are they paying triple the price? Exactly, and as a matter of fact, I was just looking at some stuff on the internet this past week about, you know, why pay those big prices for a survey? I can show you how to do this in 25 minutes with your with your phone, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Um, and it, I'm it, all it, for it, it. I'm sorry. I'm all for it. I say the the more people, it's going to cost you ten times as much to fix your problem than it would have to do it right in the first place. Yeah, so if they want to choose to do the easy way out, and but it may not be their fault. It may just be the misinformation about how to do this. Oh, I think that's true. Yeah, I, I'm yeah. certain that's true. I don't think it's I don't think it's purposeful. I just think it's having bad information from which to work. Absolutely. So we're we're down about to our last minute for the show today. I want to make sure I thank you for being with me today. It's been a great conversation. I always enjoy my conversations with you, and and I'll really be looking forward to when we get the uh, the information from the the group that has come out with the hopefully uniform language that will apply to the 2022 NGS uh, uh, elements when they come out. I know you guys Sounds have been working great. on that. And I will highly encourage anyone that wants to become licensed, whether an SIT or a PS, go to my website and go to the online FS or PS prep courses. And uh, anyone can watch about two hours of video, you know, totally for free about how to get licensed, what the test is like, how it's changed over the, the past couple of years. So if anyone is interested or has people in their office who want to learn more, no obligation, it's totally free. We just want to get as many people in the profession as we can, and if we can do that, we'll be in good shape. That sounds great. Thanks again, Tony, for being with me. It's been great. Had a great time, Kurt. Thank you. Thanks. Take care. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.